The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Fine. Thank you, Tom. And yourself? Good. Thanks for being here tonight, Father. You're welcome. Thank you. No problem. Good to see you. Father, we've, uh, we've talked a lot about the Society of St. Pius X and recent programs, and that's always a uh, controversial topic that uh, we get a lot of feedback on that. And uh, I believe just recently you came across some interesting comments from Bishop Fillet from some time ago. So would you care to, to read some of those quotes for us, Father? Well, one of the reasons why the Society of St. Pius X uh, is so controversial right now is because of the efforts of the leadership of the Society of St. Pius X to get back in the good graces of the Vatican and be formally recognized by the modernists who are now controlling the Vatican, notably Francis. Right? And um, I thought it was very interesting to look back just uh, five, six years ago. Uh, we did a program recently, actually, I think it's entitled uh, Catholic Commentary on the News, July 2018. Okay which was uh, at least partly devoted to the rebranding of the Society of St. Pius X. Uh, and, I mean, e even the idea of the Society of St. Pius X being a brand, you know, <laughs> I mean, is that what we're talking about? We're talking about worldly things here. Um, if that's what comes of a religion, that, it, that it, 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 it's a brand, uh, then all, immediately they're in the wrong, they're, they're in the wrong pasture. Um, but in any case, I did come across something interesting, and I would say, um, in human terms, it would be considered uh, coincidental or accidental, but I think in light of this controversy engulfing the Society of St. Pius X and all, a lot of very good people who are caught up in that, um, it, it could be providential. It's actually uh, printed out of the Catholic Family News, and the, the date on the, uh, on the headline here, Bishop Fillet on Pope Francis. What we have before us is a genuine modernist. The date given here is November 14th, the year, I'm sorry, October 14th, in the year 2013. Uh, it wasn't all that long ago, right? And um, the quote, as part of the headline, says, what we have before us is a genuine modernist. And those supposedly are the words of uh, Bishop Fillet himself. What I find it most interesting is this, though, um, that during a talk Bishop Fillet was giving us uh, in Kansas City, a fairly lengthy talk at the Angeles Press Conference, Bishop Fillet related that uh, Sister Lucy at one point was asked about the third secret of Fatima, and she acknowledged that it is about chapters 8 through 13 of the book of the Apocalypse. Um, in fact, this is what the article said. Uh, Bishop Fillet quoted in detail Sister Lucy, those who have read the third secret and those who have knowledge of the, of the secret. He noted Sister Lucia said, that if we want to know the contents of the third secret, read chapters 8 through 13 of the Apocalypse. This is very significant because 
When you read chapters 8 through 13 of the Apocalypse, you find that it is about the end times, about uh, the time leading up to the coming of the Antichrist. And if this is what Sister Lucy is saying, that the third secret is about, uh, that's very telling. In fact, uh, the... Um, the man who was a, of a close friend of uh, Paul VI said he was uh, standing next to Paul VI when he uh, ratified the documents of Vatican II. Paul VI turned to him and said to him, I'm about to sound the, the uh, trumpets of the apocalypse. Isn't that curious? Right, right out of the eighth chapter of the book of the apocalypse. And uh, Jean Guiton said he was very surprised to hear him say this. He was shocked to hear him say that. That's what he said he was going to do when he was promulgating the documents of Vatican II. That tells you something very important. <coughs> but the article continues, Bishop Follet noted that Pope St. Pius X said at the beginning of his pontificate, the son of perdition may already be on earth. Now, that was actually in Pope Pius X's original encyclical, the first encyclical, October 4th of the year, uh, of the year 1903. Okay, A. Supremi was the name of the beginning of the encyclical, where Pius X actually said he was terrified to become the Pope because he thought that the Antichrist might already be in the world. And uh, the article continues, he also noted the original prayer to St. Michael uh, Pope Leo XIII mentions that Satan aims to establish his seat in Rome. <clears throat> okay? But you uh, go a few short paragraphs forward, and here is what I think is most significant. And this is what the article says. Bishop Fillet alluded to the SSPX slash Vatican drama of 2012. And this purports to be a quote from Bishop Fillet. When we see what is happening now, that is under Pope Francis, we thank God, we thank God, we have been preserved from any kind of agreement from last year. And we may say that one of the fruits of the Rosary Crusade we did is that we have been preserved from such a misfortune. Thank God. It is not that we don't want to be Catholics. Of course, we want to be Catholics, and we are Catholics, and we have a right to be recognized as Catholics. But we are not going to jeopardize our treasures for that. Of course not. Now, you take that statement of October 2013, and you, you see what's going on in the Society of St. Pius X in light of that statement, and you realize something has gone terribly wrong in the meantime. What, he, what he's thanking God for preventing, now he's avidly pursuing. Mm -hmm. He says, we're not going to jeopardize our treasures. I assume he's talking about the Mass and the Sacraments for that. And now he is. Right. Right? So, I mean, I, I think this is a, a, a trumpet call and not the trumpet of the apocalypse necessarily, but it's a, it's a trumpet sound uh, to those of the Society of St. Pius X. There's something very wrong going on there. And, uh, you know, they quote uh, Bishop Vallée as saying here in 2013 that he is a genuine modernist. Well, this is not news. And it probably wasn't news back in 2013 either, frankly. Um, 
but uh, he he at least is stating that he recognizes that, and he's telling everyone, as a matter of fact, Francis is a genuine modernist. And and that was that was what five years ago. And I mean, how many how much more has come out since then to to affirm that position to just prove that all of the things that Francis has said and done since then it's even worse. It's almost like the farther. Francis gets from traditionalism the closer he gets to the society, society of St. Pius X. Yeah, that was a little less than, than five years ago. Mm -hmm. That was October of 2013, and we're only still in August of 2018. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, you know, again, a current article that, that just, uh, I think, echoes this these words of, of uh, Bishop Follet of 2013. There's a, an article from LifeSite News that just uh, appeared uh, well, I've got the date line at uh, the 8th, uh, October, I'm sorry, August 14th, 2018. The title is Pope Francis Breaks Catholic Traditions Whenever He Wants. And this is a statement made by the Vatican advisor, a certain Father Rosica. This Father Rosica, by the way, a Vatican advisor, was supposed to be saying a mass, okay, a Novus Ordo liturgy, at a, a so-called LGBT conference. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, it became known. Uh, the alarm was sounded and he didn't show up for it. But the fact is that he was anticipated to say that shows where his thoughts are, where his heart is, where he really, uh, his allegiance is with that. Yeah. You know? By the way, also it just came out that Francis himself referred to young people today and those who were homosexual, he referred to them as the LGBT youth. And that's the first time in any official Vatican document that that expression was used. And the homosexuals everywhere are saying this marks a kind of formal acceptance of the LGBT community among the young people and shows that the Vatican is beginning to extend to them some respect. Mm -hmm. Interesting, right? That, that they would interpret it that way, but that he would use that and extend that as though it actually is some kind of a, a unit. Right. Now, it's hard to talk about these things on this program because this is also sorted. But if you're talking about the Novus Ordo, and especially the contemporary Novus Ordo, where all the news is breaking everywhere around us about how sordid and how corrupt this, the Novus Order, the New Order is right to its very core. But you know, people are beginning to get a chance. They're beginning to see what modernism is. They're beginning to see the evil of it in its fruits. Pope Pius X didn't need to see the fruits of modernism. <clears throat> he saw the fruits within the principles. He saw where the principles would take us. Very few people could see had the wisdom and the understanding to to see that the modernist principles were so evil and where they would lead. He saw it very clearly and sounded the alarm back in 1907. But, um, but now we're, we're actually witnessing the results of all this and what it has done, what it has done in, uh, to cath the Catholic people, what it is doing now in the name of the Catholic Church, which is the greatest fraud in history. For people to believe that this is the Catholic Church doing these things, it's that is that is absolutely criminal. Uh, that these things are being perpetrated in the name of the Catholic Church, and in the eyes of many in the world, and even in the name of Christ. But this Father Rosica says here, Francis breaks Catholic traditions whenever and wherever he wants. And, and you read the article, as I say, it's from LifeSite News. 
by uh, Matthew Covenant Hoffman. It's an interesting <clears throat> article, datelined August 14, 2018, Lifesite News. And he's quoting this Father Rosica, talking about the rise of this Jesuit Pope, and he's brought kind of a Jesuit understanding of things. <clears throat> and uh, basically, he says that's a commitment to um, conversion and discernment. And that, that discernment allows him to just disregard. Yeah. Disregard, and he even indicates disregard scripture and tradition. Uh, well, you know, the two fonts of uh, revelation are scripture and tradition. So, I mean, this man is actually coming out and saying what is should be very obvious to all, but pe there are people who are just afraid to say it. He's not afraid to say it, but he's applauding it. He thinks it's wonderful that Francis can disregard sacred scripture and disregard sacred tradition to do what he wants. Uh, here, here's what the article said. Rosica also indicates that Francis regards adherence to the scriptures and the Catholic Church's traditional doctrines which the Church declares as the standard by which the Catholic faith is itself known and understood as a, quote, disordered attachment, end of quote, to be attached to sacred scripture and sacred tradition, that is, divine revelation. Uh, Francis is following a different spirit. We know that, the, the spirit of surprises, right? <laughs> it's not the Holy Ghost by any means. It is quite the contrary, right? And uh, this Father uh, Rosicchia, well, anyway, if people are interested, they can actually go to the site and they can look for this. And uh, it is very, very telling and unfortunately very true, you know. <laughs> it's sort of like uh, the devil can speak true. He can acknowledge uh, in celebrating the truth of something evil that he is rejoicing in. And this is what's happening here. Sure. Father, I've got the, the same article actually from the, um, the uh, Father Rosica. There, there was one... Uh, one quote that I wanted to read here for you. He says that it's hard to predict what will come next. And speaking of, of Francis's page, <laughs> right. he says More he, call, he calls Francis shrewd, and he says that he's imbued with the trait of holy cunning. He says the Pope's openness, however, also a signature, signature of his Jesuit training and development, means that not even he is sure where the Spirit will lead. Yeah. Pope has said, I don't have all the answers. I don't even have all the questions. I always think of new questions. And there are always new questions coming forward. Well, I mean, uh, again, uh, this is like the devil himself, you know, acknowledging the truth and, and shortly with joy over mm -hmm. it. Yeah. But the fact is, he calls Francis uh, cunning shrewd. and shrewd. Yeah. And, and, but, you know, our Lord says, be shrewd as serpents and guileless as doves. He never talks about Francis being guileless as a dove, does he? <laughs> He's shrewd as a serpent and guileless as a serpent, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think Father Rosica not only has him right, has him pegged, but is willing to say it too. Yeah. Uh, but it's almost a way that, it, like, he's taking a victory lap. Yeah. For the modernists in, in holding up his uh, admiration for Francis, and for and Francis is uh, just um, just attack on the, on the Catholic faith sure. and souls. Yeah. And, uh, Father, you know, you, you said earlier that, uh, you know, people are, are beginning to see the fruits of modernism and what it does. And perhaps that's objectively true, but it, it seems to me that um, although people are witnessing the fruits of modernism, they're not making that connection. A lot of people aren't because uh, it seems the, the cunning modernists, this, this was their plan to to establish all of these, these evils and the... Uh, 
and their new church. But they did this on purpose because they do it in the name of the Catholic Church. And so, you know, in, in so many articles out there that you read, no one makes a distinction between modernism and traditional true Catholicism. There's so many of these that just, you know, they talk about the Catholic Church's problem with abuse and the Catholic Church's problem with this, blah, 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 whatever. They never make the connection of the the difference of the Novus Ordo Church, the post vatican II Church, which is an entirely different religion and traditional Catholicism. And that's why it seems to me that nothing is ever done in regards to any of these scandals or any of these abuses or anything like that, because this is exactly what they want, because... All of these things are being done in the name of the Catholic Church, and it's destroying the Catholic Church's reputation. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that this is the cunning, this is this is the shrewdness. No, this is the devil's work. Modernist. I mean, what did what did the devil do during our Lord's lifetime? He, he tried to destroy his reputation. He tried to denounce him as a Samaritan, denounce him as possessed by the devil, denounce his works as being, um, you know, based upon the power of the devil, right? And we see we see him doing the same thing to the church right now. And uh, there was a movie, it's kind of a cult classic, I guess, called The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where this alien, these, this alien life form comes and, and takes over the bodies of people on Earth. And, they, they, it, you know, it appears as though they're themselves, but they're not, okay? They've been hijacked, right? And um, this is much farther beyond that. I mean, this, this is not science fiction. Uh, the modernists have done this with the church. They've, they've gotten in there, seized the institution of the church, and they're uh, passing themselves off as the Catholic Church. But of course, um, for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, they, they can see right through that. That is a very thin disguise right now. You know, as far as that goes, I think it's important to, to point out for our readers too, though. <clears throat> And I point this out to them as I did last time because they need to understand very clearly that this is not the work of the Catholic Church. It's not the work of Jesus Christ, okay? The Church hasn't failed. She's under attack in the most insidious way possible right now. As we would expect from those who are the worst enemies the Church has ever faced, as St. Pius X has condemned the modernists. The worst enemy the Church has ever faced, modernism. And the most dangerous because they are within he said the very veins in the bloodstream of the church. This was back in 1907, he said this. So, uh, and then 50 years later, when uh, John the 23rd announces that, he, you know, uh, the new program is a giornamento, bringing the church up to date, making the church relevant to the modern world, people should have realized this is the language of modernism that he's speaking to us. But again, you heard very little about it. Even though if they'd been paying attention, it would have been... Vi- so obvious. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty now. But looking back to that point, the very lingo, that, I mean, the, the, the very uh, buzzwords that John Paul, uh, John the Twenty Third, was using, and that were rife uh, in the church, especially here in America, should have tipped anybody with an ounce of sense or knowledge about the history of the church <clears throat> that this is it. This is the fulfillment of what Pope Pius the Tenth warned us about. But I think. We have to make a very strong uh, statement that this is not the Catholic Church. When I travel, I'm wearing the collar, right? And I get very evil looks from people. You know, very evil looks as though I'm the devil himself sometimes. Now, there are those who say, oh, hi, Father, people you never saw before because they saw the collar and they associated it with good things, okay? These are usually older Catholics, right? 
But I mean, uh, you see a lot of the, the young people look at you as though, you know, ooh, you know, you, there's something evil about you, something sinister. And this is exactly what the modernists want. They want that reaction, right? <clears throat> they want even the name of Christ to be greeted with, with horror, you know? And, um, but we have to be able to make the statement that this is not the Catholic Church. It is not the work of Christ. This is the work of his enemies, the enemies of Christ and the enemies of his church. And if anyone were to say to me, you know, oh, you're, you're one of them, aren't you? You're one of those abusing priests, aren't you? I'd say, no, they don't wear collars. They don't wear Roman collars. They never do. You see them in the, you know, the old pictures will have them, but their current, you know, when they're being arrested and so on, they're not wearing collars. And when they're not wearing collars on airplanes. I know there are priests who are, who are traveling, modern priests who are traveling on airplanes. I, I spend three days a week. Father Greenwald spends three days a week, often, sometimes four days out of the week, traveling by air, okay, to get to the missions. And we know there are priests there. They come up and say, uh, are you a Catholic priest? Say, well, a traditional Catholic priest. Oh, hi, I'm Father Bob, or I'm Father <laughs> Joe, or I'm Father Max, or whatever, you know. Um, and, um, and they're wearing just you know, flowered Hawaiian shirts or something, you know. They don't want to be known as priests. And I wonder why, after what they've done. You know, so we're the ones who bear the brunt of that. You know, the traditional priests who still act like priests, think like priests, and our priests. You know, they're the ones who bear the brunt of their, their, their evil. So, but again, I think we we need to be very clear on this. Every single one of us needs to understand that what's happening here is a confirmation of what our Lord has taught us, and a confirmation of our Catholic faith. Um, because it is a fulfillment of prophecy. And not only uh, can it happen, it has to happen, because it has been foretold. The uh, shocking thing is that it's happening before our very eyes. Right? And I want, to, I want to point out that there's a, it has to be a parallel between the life of our Lord and the life of the Church. The life of our Lord and the history of the Church. There has to be a parallel there. <coughs> and I think the parallels are very strong. I mean, I'll go right down the list. This is what I gave my students a few years ago, okay? They have to understand that. Um, Martin Luther criticized the Catholic Church for being corrupt, he said, as though Christianity had, at that time, had gone astray from the time of Constantine. And he, Martin Luther, had finally rediscovered the true meaning of the Scriptures, the true meaning of faith, and it was going to somewhat restore true Christianity to the world after it had been corrupted by the Catholic Church, in his mind. But we have to remember the Church which Christ established must reflect our Lord's own life on earth. Christ himself was born in obscurity, and his Church began in obscurity. Christ was threatened and persecuted even at infancy. His Church was persecuted during her infancy too. Christ had a hidden life in Nazareth, and even the church in the early days of persecution practiced what was called the Disciplina Arcani early on in not, you know, making uh, public to the world her teachings because they, they understood our Lord's statement, cast not your pearls before swine, uh, as not allowing the, the pagans of the world to make a mockery of the Catholic faith. And so they taught their catechumens but they taught them in secret, as it were. 
Christ's public life began at the wedding feast of Cana, where disciples believed because of a miracle of water made wine. And our Lord's church received many conversions by the marriages of pagan kings with Catholic women, Catholic wives. They took them as their queens. And the filthy wash water of paganism actually became very fine wine because these kings who married these, these pagan kings who married these Catholic queens <clears throat> became strong defenders of the faith in Christianity. And often as they began their lives as barbaric uh, pagan kings <clears throat> and ended their lives as devout believers upholding the faith in Christ. You know? And this was the role of, of these marriages early in the history of the church. If you look back in the history of the conversion of the barbarian tribes, that's how it happened. Two, not by the Pope sending missionary um, armies, but by sending missionaries. The conversion of these very noble Catholic women who really gained the love and respect of pagan kings who took them as wives and were converted by their strength, their innocence, their virtue. Christ taught truths of faith with divine authority. His church must teach truths of faith by divine authority also. And any, any church that can't teach the truths of faith with divine authority can't be the church of Christ, right? And uh, Christ taught truths of morals, morality with divine authority. And so his church must also teach the truths of faith with divine authority. That's Christ's authority. Christ justified and sanctifies souls with divine power. And so his church must also have the power to justify and sanctify souls. And we know that power in his sacraments. I'm talking about the traditional sacraments. Any church that doesn't have this doesn't have the power of Christ to justify or sanctify souls. Christ suffered contradictions from the worldly powerful, even being accused of having a devil. And so Christ's church must be attacked and accused also by the powers of this world. And it's exactly what we see. Peter himself contradicted Christ with his worldly-minded objections that Christ would not die on the cross. This was unacceptable, and our Lord even called him Satan. And so his church even deals with this. Worldly-minded popes who deny, really deny, the matter of sacrifice and deny the crucifixion of our Lord and the fact that the church herself must, must go through this. Christ has betrayed to death, was betrayed to death by his own apostle. And the church itself will be betrayed by her own leaders too, who will be... be Trading her over, handing her over for death. Christ was denied by Peter, and so his church also must be denied by Peter. In danger, Christ was abandoned by his apostles. The church will be abandoned also by her apostles, her bishops. She will suffer that. Christ gathered many thousands to follow him. So his church has gathered many thousands to follow him too. I mean, the, the parallels are there. Christ watched many walk away from him and forsake him when their faith was challenged. Remember the, the promise to give them his body and blood? So the church has often suffered great losses with the rise of heresies, challenging the faith. 
And the heretics said the same thing. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? And they turned around and condemned it. Christ spoke. He did, in fact, speak with divine authority, and so much his church. Christ acted with divine authority, and so much his church. Christ was perfectly consistent in his teachings, without any contradiction. And so must the church that he established be consistent in her teaching. There's the ordinary magisterium of the church. Christ was not only consistent in his teaching, he was consistent in his actions. And so must his church be perfectly consistent in its actions. <clears throat> Even in the face of the failures of the members of the church, as Christ himself was consistent in his actions in the face of the failures of his own apostles. But Christ himself never failed. Christ was accused of being an evildoer. His church is accused. Christ suffered crucifixion. I mentioned this before. So must his church. Christ was buried. And so his church will appear to be buried also. Remember uh, that they, they wanted, they tried to keep our Lord in that tomb. They couldn't do it, could they? Well, the Masons and the other enemies of the church today want to put the church in her tomb. And they want to, uh, as they themselves said, erase the very memory of Christ. You know, they're not going to succeed. But remember what our Lord said. When the Son of Man returns, do you think he will find faith on earth? Interesting statement, that. Because the rhetorical question seems to beg the answer, well, no. Well, if the faith will not be on the earth, where will it be? In the catacombs again. It will be underground. And so, so it will be with the church. It will have to be underground once again. Christ rose from the dead. So his church will be seen as rising from the dead. And Christ rose glorified and immortal, and his church will rise glorified and immortal too. And Christ reigns in heaven, and so must his church also reign glorious in heaven with him. The church has to go through these things. And for people who, who find what's happening today uh, to be challenging their faith, um, their allegiance to the church and their allegiance to our Lord, they don't understand that this is a confirmation of Christ's teaching, not a... Uh, somehow a, 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 uh, a denial, as it were, you know, an argument against his mm -hmm. teaching. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want them to understand that, the practice that we're, we're, we're part of this drama that, that's happening right now. And so uh, we have to be willing to do what St. Paul told the Thessalonians to do so many years ago, hold fast to the traditions you've received, right, and love the truth. The answer is very obvious. The church has always given the same answer throughout her entire history. In times of doubt, confusion, trouble, hold fast to the tradition you've received, right? Um, that's, what, that's what she wants us to do now. And, and, you know, Father, another point going through your, your list there and just comparing that to the modernist, the Novus Ordo religion, you can see how it's totally antithetical to the, to, to the true vision of the church that you laid out there. You know, you talked about the true church being concerned with morals and teaching morals and, right. and justifying, sanctifying men. When does the Novus Ordo religion talk about morals? Only for, to, only for, to, to, to call it a question. Right, yeah. you know, they, yeah. their, their chief focus is on worldly things, worldly goods. Mm -hmm. I, th I think uh, 
Francis just recently said something along the lines of uh, the measure of your faith is how you how you treat the poor, you know, how mm-hmm. you deal with the poor. It's all just a social gospel, mm-hmm. all of that. Not about Christ. You know, you, you it's also, not about God. Uh, and look what he said about the death penalty. The measure of the, the rightness or wrongness of the death penalty is human dignity. Mm-hmm. This is so typical. So worldly. The, the Masons would say the same thing. Mm-hmm. And talk about, you know, you mentioned the, the uh, being constant all the time. What is modernism but constant change? And mm-hmm. also the... The point about you know being persecuted by the world, being mocked by the world, and made fun of. Modernism, you know, these uh, there was a lot when Francis came out with with his uh, pronouncement on the death penalty. There there was a big deal about how so many Democrats and liberals suddenly rediscovered their Catholic faith and love love the Catholic Church again because she, you know she's coming up to date. They pray every time something like this. Even happens, Raul Castro happens. said he was. Thinking about becoming a Catholic again because of Francis, <laughs> it, he wasn't going to stop being a communist, mm-hmm. right? But now there's perfect, there's no contradiction there mm-hmm. for him. Yeah. So uh, who knows? The devil himself could become a Catholic under Francis. He could. Yeah. Uh, you know this idea of human dignity being the measure of things, not God's goodness. At Vatican II, uh, one of the one of the conservatives <clears throat> said something kind of odd. I think it's rather odd. And the liberals jumped on it right away. Uh, One of the liberals was arguing against that last document of Vatican II, Dignitatis Humanae Personae, of the dignity of the human person, which was the document about religious liberty. I want to do a show on that. Maybe next time we should do the show on that because of this whole idea of human dignity being the, the... our whole point of morality, all of morality of modernism and the new church turns around that, human dignity, right? <laughs> and um, one of the uh, conservatives spoke up in objecting to the point of the liberal modernist leftist religious liberty that is being proposed by Vatican II in its document on religious liberty. And he says, but you can't say that people have the right to proclaim laws on God. Uh, I'm sorry, beg your pardon. That people have the right from God to tell law, lies about God. That God gives people right to blaspheme him to the world. You know, Because truth has rights. And uh, John Courtney Murray, the Jesuit, right, who was the leader of the charge, American Jesuit, leader of the charge of Vatican II for this new uh, leftist idea of religious liberty, which is totally contrary to Catholicism, said, well, you can't say that truth has rights because only persons have rights, he said. Only persons can have rights. So he, he said that to try to silence that whole argument. But what they should have come back with is, well, our Lord is the way, the truth, and the life. God is truth. He is the God who can neither deceive nor be deceived. The foundation of all that is true, that is good, and is beautiful. So you're right. Only persons have rights. And the divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost have rights. God has rights. And that's our whole point. God has rights. It's not a matter of human dignity being the end-all and the be-all. And then that's where the Gnosticism comes in, right? The Gnosticism that we are the ones who determine good and evil, right? 
What was the temptation that the serpent gave to Eve? You will be the ones. Eat the apple, defy God, whatever, eat the forbidden fruit, defy God, and you will be the ones determining what is right and what is wrong. Make your own rules. This is exactly what, uh, what the leftist at Vatican II were arguing. And, um, but unfortunately, I never, I never read that they made that comeback. Now, maybe it was just ignored. Maybe they made that comeback in that response, but, but it was just ignored by the documents I was reading. But in all these years, I never heard anyone who responded to that. Only persons have rights. You can argue, you cannot argue that truth has rights. But in any case, this is, this is the dichotomy going on here between uh, God, the rights of Almighty God, and human dignity, which, according to liberalism, is going to be independent of God, make man independent of God, like a God unto himself. And, I, you know, I, I really would like to do a program on that whole document because uh, Archbishop Lefebvre and I had a conversation about that document once in, uh, at the, when the seminary was in Michigan, way back when in the early, very early 80s. Actually, this is probably about the year 1980. And uh, it was an interesting conversation. I thought it'd be good to relate that conversation and what came after, out of sure. it afterwards. But in any case, um, the, um, when, when you start talking about human dignity as the arbiter of, of right and wrong, the fundamental, um, as it were, wellspring, you know, of, of what is right, what is wrong. You are, you are uh, opening Pandora's box to all manner of evil. This is what the, um, the modernists have done. And we're seeing the abuse, the sexual abuse crisis in the modern church. Uh, suddenly, the, the, the lid is being blown off of these massive cover-ups by bishops. Even uh, even years ago, when this first started happening, I mean, there were those who were willing to be very honest and say, look, what we're seeing here is that maybe, maybe 4% of the modern priests are behind these evils, but 80% of the bishops are covering up for them. And uh, that was a very interesting uh, percentage. And I'm sure there were people who were thinking, no, it can't be. But we see now that it is exactly true. I mean, six dioceses of the new church in, uh, in Pennsylvania have, uh, have been basically cited before the grand jury of, of, of harboring priests, 300 priests or so. Just 99 of them alone are in the one diocese of Scranton who have abused uh, over a thousand, of ch thousand children. Some are actually saying because these, is these are only those who've come forward. It's a tip of the iceberg. It could be multiple thousands of children yep. <clears throat> over the years into the 1990s. Of course, one of those bishops is now trying to uh, explain, well, you know, things have changed. Uh, these cases uh, go back some years. But the funny thing is, and funny not in a ho-ho sort of way, but funny in a very peculiar sort of way, is that they all follow Vatican II. They all follow the accession of the modernists in the church, you know. And uh, so we have the case after case after case, article after article after article. And here it goes right back to house, Francis's own house. <clears throat> he chose nine, that was nine, eight or nine cardinals, I think it was nine, to help him basically run the church in, in place of what, the remains of the Roman curia, curia. 
Three of those cardinals right now, three of them, are up to their ears in this sexual abuse scandal. At least three of them. I mean, one of them, Theodore McCarrick, right? And uh, who himself has been uh, unmasked as a serial abuser of children all the way through. And he became a Novosoto cardinal, a confidant of, of Francis. Are we to believe that Francis was not aware of this, of this problem? Are we, I mean, at what point do we have to start wondering about Francis himself? At what point is it not legitimate to question about the cover-up and what, how that reflects? But then you have this Cardinal O'Malley, who's supposed to be so, in New Order Church terms, stay steady as she goes, and conservative even, right? And now his own seminaries, right? have been denounced by young men there and who were there as seminarians as being hotbeds of this evil. And uh, also probably the man who of all of those characters is the closest to him, and that's Maradiaga down in uh, Honduras. I heard him speak here in Cincinnati not long ago, well, a, few, a couple of years ago now. And he was very smooth, very affable, but I couldn't help but get the impression that Again, he's one of those who is shrewd as a serpent and guileless as a serpent. <clears throat> Pushing for the canonization of the leftist, uh, Romero, down there. Um, but anyway, um, I mean, his, his uh, seminaries down in, in Honduras now have been denounced as harboring this, this massive block of just flagrant homosexuals. And... Um, but but his response to this was to to attack those who complained, who made it public. He denounced them. And so, you know, eventually you get to the point where you have to ask the question, to what extent are they not only covering this up, but to what extent are they actively involved and engaged in this evil? When you when you read books like such as this, Goodbye, Good Men. This was put out in 2002 by one of our local gentlemen here uh, named Michael S. Rose, okay? Uh, Goodbye, Good Men details the homosexual corruption of the seminaries that was guaranteed when they turned the, the, the uh, control over the vocations who were allowed to enter the seminaries to homosexual vocation directors. And uh, he titled the book Goodbye, Good Men. It's pretty obvious. Because when they found a, a young man who really was not a homosexual, they got rid of him. Yeah. They found a way to drum him out of there. They made him subject to, uh, homo to counseling, psychological counseling. <laughs> so there's something weird about it. And it's not only weird, but even not suspicious, even maybe a little bit sinister about him because he, he is not, he's homophobic. He's homophobic. And then two years before that book came out, a book called The Changing Face of the Priesthood, which was written by the diocesan uh, vocations director in Cleveland. His name was Donald Cousins. And uh, that book is still available. And in that book, uh, Father Cousins, probably Monsignor Cousins, I have the book uh, somewhere, actually goes so far as to say that 
there, there is reason to believe that 58% of the modern priests, and we're talking about the year 2000, mm. were homosexuals. 58%. Estimates were running between 30 and 60% even back then. And you know what he said? This is, this is very telling, I think. Vocations director from the Diocese of Cleveland, talking about as many as 58%, 58 out of every 100 of their modern priests, in the year 2000, homosexuals. The problem was not that they were homosexuals. The problem was this, that in the years ahead, he said, if you have heterosexual couples of a man and a woman who were married to each other, and they went for marriage counseling, they might have trouble in the future finding a heterosexual priest to counsel them. That, he said, constituted the problem. <laughs> With that kind of thinking, Tom, no wonder, no wonder it's going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the absolute rot of the Novus Ordo is coming out more and more and being on display for all. And the tragedy is that people actually think that that is Catholicism, that that is the Catholic Church, and those who have, don't have a very weak faith or don't believe in Christ actually think that this is what, the, what Christ himself has come to. And so much for the idea of uh, human <clears throat> dignity. Uh, you know, you, you look at this. As you say, yeah. Nothing this, is more destructive than human dignity. Yeah. That, that, that's what modernism, that's what liberalism does, though. You know, uh, it, it's, that's the devil's favorite tool is to affect the confusion of ideas and the confusion of terms. And well, The dignity of man, the human dignity, resides in the fact that we're created in the image of God and by grace in the likeness of God. You destroy that, as the modernists do, and there is no dignity of man right. left. Right. I mean, these are the same people who are pushing evolution and say, you know, we're glorified apes. And kind of a pretty poor imitation of that, yeah. you know. So let's just talk about dignity of man. It's a big lie, isn't it? It's a big lie. Yeah. And, you know, Father, in, in the wake of all of this, um, you know, this report that came out from Pennsylvania, they're saying it's the, you know, it's the worst uh, thing that's ever been exposed so far in, in, in the, the new church and, and all of this. And there's all these articles out about how Pope Francis has failed to, uh, to rectify this abuse problem and... There's other articles saying how the Pope can regain the faithful's trust and all of this. And I would say, absolutely not. Francis did not fail. Francis did not fail. Oh, he's he not, succeeded. He, That's the problem. This is exactly what they wanted. He's not trying to regain anyone's trust. None of that. This is exactly what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And people are still so fleeced that they can't see. They mm -hmm. can't see this. Well, you know, the ultimate problem is going to come down to the conservative Novus Ordo believers who are trying to justify what's going on. It's trying to find a way to explain it without, without reality, mm -hmm. without facing reality. Because they're going to be painted right into a corner, and they're, yeah. ultimately the, uh, the, they're going to have to lose their faith and, and say, okay, well, there's no other way. Then the church, as I understand it, the faith, as I understand it, has failed. And Christ, as I understand it, has failed. And this is where the modernists really want to push things. Yeah. And that's why I'm begging them, please don't go there. Don't let them paint you into that corner. There is no such corner. Um, if you understood your faith, if you understood the church, if you understood Christ, you would know that these things are not um, contrary to Christ's promise. You know, that they are fulfillment 
of what we were told would happen. Isn't that what Pope Pius X said, that the end of modernism is eventually just atheism and the loss of all faith? Oh, yeah. yeah. Pantheism. Yeah. I mean, when he, when he talks about pantheism, um, he's not really distinguishing between pantheism and atheism, because obviously if, if you say that the world is God, pantheism, then you're really an atheist because you're denying the existence of the true God. If you say that mankind is God, like the Gnostics, again, you're denying the true God, and so you are an atheist. But I, I think the, a point there that you're getting at, Tom, is it's impossible for us really to be atheists. We have to worship something. It's right. in our very nature. Right. And so if we're not going to worship uh, you know, idols, you're going to worship money, you're going to worship power, you're going to worship the government as the socialists want to set the government up as the source of all rights and, again, all human dignity, right? Government assigns these things. Um, but they're going, to, they're going to be subservient to something. And um, so they may call, they may, even the atheists may call themselves atheists, but they have an absolute value that they consider to be... Um, they have to have something to live for, let's put it that way, right? Something to serve. Mm -hmm. Whatever that, serve, that, that they serve, that's their God. Right. That's their Lord. Father, let's say, uh, hypothetically, you're placed in charge of cleaning up this mess. What do you do? Well, uh, who? You. Myself? Mm -hmm. Oh, <laughs> I would resign immediately. <laughs> That'd be the first step in helping to clean up this mess. <laughs> Uh, no, but if I were someone uh, holy, you know, and I thought this was God's will in giving me this responsibility, uh, I would I would immediately draw the line and say, okay, this is the everyone's returning to the traditional faith. This vast modernist adventure of of uh, apostasy is done. Okay, declare yourself, you know, and they would they would declare themselves instantaneously. You know, we'd know, and then I would say, "Okay, you're you're out." You know, there's there's absolutely no um, confusion about the fact that you're not Catholic. Right. You know, and this is what Catholics must do going forward to practice the traditional faith in its entirety. Right. And um, again, I mean, you know, you talk about the syllabus of errors, condemning errors. Well, error is legion at this point. You know, so. Uh, you, you know, a syllabus of errors today would look like the U.S. tax code. Um, so it would be impossible to draw up all of the errors. Um, you'd actually just have to issue, uh, reissue the, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, essentially, and say, this is where our faith is. Uh, the traditional mass, traditional sacraments of the Roman rite, and the traditional, traditional rites of mass. Uh, also, I mean, the, the old Franciscans and Dominicans and Benedictines, the true traditional rites, and the Eastern rites too. You know, the real uh, rite of St. John Chrysostom, the Eastern rites and so on. You, you, would, you would preserve all of that. And, uh, and people would have to practice that. If they wouldn't do it, then they're, they're just not Catholics. Right. So the first thing to do is to, to make it very clear what Catholics are required to do. And those who are not willing to do, to do those things, they just can't be. Well, as far as the numbers go, I think that would reduce things quite dramatically. <clears throat> but, I mean, that's fine. I mean, if you look through history, you find that there are times when it's as though our Lord shook the tree to shake out all the rotten fruit. 
those who were just hanging on because it was convenient for them. Because um, they were opportunists, you know. Uh, look, one day our Lord multiplies the loaves and the fishes out in the wilderness, right? And then they want to make him king, and he disappears. And the next day, many of them find him in the synagogue at Capernaum. What does he do? In a sense, he throws down the gauntlet to them. He says, you came to me because I fed you in, out in the wilderness. He said, but remember, your fathers ate the bread out, uh, manna out in the wilderness, and they all died. But I have a living bread that has come down from heaven, uh, that if it want to eat of this bread, he will, he will uh, not die forever. He will live. And when they pressed him to give them this bread, he said, I am the bread of life. that has come down from heaven. He eats of me. Live forever, right? And the ultimate point was, our Lord was challenging them, and many, many of them walked away. And our Lord's, uh, their reaction is not what we need to focus on. Okay? It's our Lord's reaction to their reaction. What was our Lord's reaction to them walking away, muttering, saying, who can listen to this? All of those people walked away from him. So that our Lord would even invite the apostles to leave. Even invite the apostles themselves to walk away. And the last verse, Judas decides to betray him over this. It's all in St. John's Gospel, chapter 6. What was our Lord's reaction to seeing all of these people walk away? What did he do? Let him go. He watched him go. Was he sad? I'm sure. Did he try to stop them? No. Did he tell them that they'd misunderstood him? No. Because they had understood him. They just didn't believe. Right? And so we have to be ready to do that too. Popes have to be ready to do that. Right? Cardinals, bishops, uh, priests, you know, sometimes we just have to be ready for the sake of telling the truth and standing with Christ. We have to um, be prepared for those who are not going to make that act of faith. Yeah. And it's very dangerous to have a, a phony, a phony church. <clears throat> Another example of this, by the way, was in the time of Pope Honorius I, back in the first half of the 600s, when the constant the, the patriarch of Constantinople, Sergius, didn't want to draw that line. Right? He had heretics there within his, uh, his domain, as it were, who did not believe that Christ was fully human in terms of having a complete human nature. They denied to him the function of a human will which is essential for the Catholic understanding of the redemption. Mm -hmm. They denied this, that our Lord has a fully functioning act of human will to accept the crucifixion. And so rather than state the truth and risk all of those people, you know, parting from the church, he drew up, Sergius drew up a fake statement of faith which was just unclear enough so that both the Catholics and the so-called, uh, well, I, I won't use the term because it'll just confuse people, but, but those who denied, well, I'll just say the monothelists, monophysites, that's what they were known as. Monophysites, monothelites were actually of the same ilk, okay? Big word, but essentially, monotelus means Christ only had one functioning will, and that was the divine, not human. Okay, so getting past that, the big words, 
he was trying to prevent uh, them from leaving, so he tried to cover it over. And so they could all sign the same statement of faith, but they wouldn't mean the same thing. This was reported by the Bishop of Jerusalem. His name was Sophronius. And he denounced Sergius to the Pope, okay, Honorius. And Honorius' expediency was exactly the wrong thing. He said, this is very confusing, this is very divisive, I forbid you to talk about this. Silence. He enjoyed silence on everyone. And because the emperor thought it was in the best interests of peace in the empire not to have these divisions, he backed the Honorius's edict up with a decree of his own, threatening punishment. I mean, I'm talking about uh, fines and imprisonment and you know even torture and death. There were those who actually died over this because they would not be silenced because they insisted on telling the truth of what their faith was, in spite of the Pope, Honorius I. Right? So this was an example of a man who was trying to do the opposite, not to tell the truth, because it was divisive. And a Pope who went along with him. Before that century was out, Honorius was excommunicated. After his death, he was excommunicated from the Catholic Church. He was denounced as being one with the heretics. Some said that he actually was, he was, let's put it this way, he was at least guilty of favoring the heresy by silencing the truth. And some said he actually was sympathetic to the heresy itself. And there's evidence to show that. The church excommunicated him. And for a, a couple of centuries afterward, uh, when popes were, were elected and accepted the office of the papacy, they had to swear that they would not do what Honorius had done and fail the church in that way. Um, the late Father Michelli, uh, who taught me when I was at the Angelicum in Rome back in the early 70s, uh, was speaking here in Cincinnati once. I spoke with him afterwards. He was up in years and he didn't have much longer to live. We got a little conversation about what was going on in Rome and at that point. I think it was, uh, I think it was John Paul II. And Father Michelli, we literally said, you know, they excommunicated Pope Honorius I for silencing everybody about the truth. What do you think they're going to do with these guys? That's the way Father Michelli put it to me. Uh, he, uh, not very elegant, but I mean, he was a very straight talker. No wonder the Jesuits got rid of him. They put him out, right? Because he told the truth. So anyway, but sometimes, as I say, we have to go and tell the truth and let the, the in a sense, the souls fall where they will. Because our Lord set that example for us. And the church herself has told us that we have to be really ready to stand with Christ and tell the truth, mm -hmm. as Christ himself did, and deal with the consequences. So... Um, Anyway, uh, the consequences are now there for this Masonic modernist revolution of the Novus Ordo. You know, Tom, in all of this, uh, we have to keep in mind what uh, St. Louis Grignon de Montfort said. Uh, St. Louis de Montfort, I mean, just that's the way in English we would say his name, was a great devotee obviously, of our Lord and his crucifixion and death, sacrificial death on the cross, a great lover of our Lord um, in, in the Blessed Sacrament. 
But he also had a great love for the Blessed Mother, which goes along with the love for our Lord. And um, Father uh, Saint uh, Louis Grignon de Montfort said that the saints of the last times will be so great that in comparison, the saints of the early days of the church will will look like mere uh, shrubs next to the cedars of Lebanon. And a very interesting statement. This is attributed to St. Louis, uh, St. Louis Grignot de Montfort. You ask, well, wait a minute, you think about the saints of the early days, the martyrs and so on. How could they be surpassed in holiness? And I, I guess uh, we'd have to say because the world the way it's going to be in the latter days is going to be so completely wicked, so completely corrupted and perverted, that there will be no ground for being tempted in your love for God. You're either going to love him wholeheartedly or you're not going to love him at all. It's not going to be possible to be a tepid and lukewarm Catholic anymore. Um, to love him at all, you'll have to love him very much. You know? mm -hmm. And maybe this is what St. Louis Grignot de Montfort meant, that uh, the Catholics of the latter days, I mean, facing the Antichrist himself, will have to love God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength, even to have any, any faith or hope or charity at all. Um, and, you know, they will be driven underground. Um, kind of like what is happening in China right now. With Francis's blessings, I'm sorry to say. But we we have to, we have to rededicate ourselves to our faith. I've I've heard it, I've heard it said, Father, that uh, that purgatory will end with the end of the world, and uh, well. with that uh, in mind, you know, the question arises: Well, what happens with all of the the souls living at that time at the end of the world? What happens with them? They they have no purgatory and. And I've heard it said in, in line with uh, St. Louis de Montfort there that, that this, these saints will be so great, they'll be mm -hmm. so perfect, they'll have such a perfect love for our Lord that they, they won't require any purgatory. The sufferings that they go through mm -hmm. in those latter days will be, essentially be their purgatory on earth and they'll mm -hmm. have no need for it. And that's how great that they'll be. They'll but those straight, left on earth at that down. time will be ready for heaven. Right? Yeah. Yeah. They will be sanctified. Well, that's a very good point. And uh, I think there's a lot of merit to it. Sure. Well, Father, there were a lot of merit to us. <laughs> if we're faithful to our Lord, there will be, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, Father, thank you for being here tonight. We had a uh, quite the lengthy program, but we covered a lot of ground. I think it was, it was well worth it. So well, thank you. I hope so, Tim. God bless you all, and uh, I'll thank our uh, our viewers, and hope that uh, if they found it difficult to watch such a lengthy program. Perhaps at least they got some souls out of purgatory by staying with us. <laughs> Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.